Hey everyone, I'm Patrick. And I'm Chris. And this is Dark and Devious. another episode of dark and devious uh i am looking at the beautiful suntanned face of patrick here uh we are this is probably the farthest we'll ever be apart won't it most likely um (laughs) i mean i have lived on the other side of the globe before i don't anticipate moving there again anytime soon um but chris still is at home in minnesota Whereas I am on vacation in Hawaii, uh, in particular in Honolulu on the island of Oahu, which is a much, much um, needed break after what 2020 dealt us and also just from winter itself. It's it's great out here. I got to say this morning it snowed. So... I, it had been really nice the last few days, and today wasn't so bad. But uh, I think you're really, you're really getting out of here uh, at a great moment. I mean, you're kind of missing the mild weather, though. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yes, uh, fingers crossed. Because you know, it's it's not impossible for there to be a blizzard in April in Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe maybe when you come back, bring some of that sunshine with you. I'll try. My my goal is to come back three shades darker. I'm already (laughs) at least one shade darker, so I'll bring some extra, extra for everybody else. I think that sounds fantastic. Uh, I mean, if anybody could pull it off, it's you. Oh well, thank you. So uh, like we were saying, we are, this is our first experiment with recording uh, using Zoom. So we hope that this, uh, we're, we're still learning. So we hope that this sounds great for you guys. We've been upgrading little sound equipment and, and stuff. So this has been a really fun technical journey too. Uh, it's- it has. I'm not the most tech savvy. I've had to uh, ask a lot of people for, for uh, additional support. And um, I've had to ask Chris to do some editing. So as of right now, before we're famous, Chris is our editor. I, oh, I can add that to my resume. And That's- we can oh. both be co-producers, I suppose. Right, yes. So any awards that we win, yes. we'll, we'll both get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in our back pocket already. Yes. Um, all right. Yeah. So the big news is that you are on vacation. That is super amazing for you. And I'm very, very jealous, but I'm hoping that I will get my own vacation sometime. I hope so too. You deserve it. <laughs> I always um, see Chris at my local Trader Joe's. Yes, so yes. <laughs> Trader Joe's, if you're listening, your host is one of your employees. So I'm one of the best. Yes. Give him a raise. <laughs> yes, I'll gladly accept that. Uh, all right. Well, so I am super excited. You know, in case you were homesick for Minnesota, I have a Minnesota murder for you. So mm. you won't have to feel uh, so homesick, which I'm sure you're just absolutely just pining for Minnesota right now. I'm missing that hot dish that yeah. I've never eaten. <laughs> that ludicrous. Because where I came from, it's called tater tot casserole. So I'm down for some Minnesota. I'm so ready for Minnesota. All right. Well, uh, I know we're going to take a, we're going to take an ad break here. And then when we come back, I am going to give you that Minnesota hot dish mystery that you are craving. I cannot wait. (laughs) All right. 
first a word from our sponsor. All right, we're back. Well, um, so I have a few thoughts of what this could be. Um, since moving to Minnesota, I've heard a few uh, big time crimes and some small time crimes. And I, I'm very curious because there's, there's a case that I want to hear. Ooh, there's, a, okay. there's a national wide case that I know a lot about, but then there's a very small, only Minnesotan known case that I'm secretly hoping that that's what it is. Oh, this one could be a curveball because uh, I feel like it's it's one that's been a little forgotten in some ways, uh, unless you're part of a certain community. So we'll see if this is the one you're thinking of or if this is a brand new one. There was increased police presence on the streets. Uh, the, the crack epidemic, which had been a major problem throughout the 1980s, was kind of ebbing by the time the 90s rolled around. And even legalized abortion was sometimes credited with the lowering in the crime rate. I feel like that was something that was in Freakonomics where they talked about like the relationship between the abortion rate and like a drop in crime. Yeah, that makes sense because I, I, I only know like historical, like, like early 1900s where it was illegal for women to get abortions and also like doctors were doing it under the table. You know, they weren't yeah, advertising it, it. It wasn't a common thing. And and that there, and basically, I guess the, the thought is like, if, if you're an unwanted child, then when you grow up, or you're you're gonna be you're gonna have a tough life because you were an unwanted child and then right that can cause lots of problems along the way and set you maybe not on the bat on the not really set you on the right foot basically in life and oftentimes people who maybe have not had the easiest growing up experience sometimes end up in a life of crime i think that's kind of the just of the reasoning. Unfortunately, that. that's very true. Yeah. So we're looking at the summer of 1991. Uh, that, that decline in crime was yet to be realized and the city was living up to its deadly reputation. 1991 was the most deadly year for the city of Minneapolis with 63 homicides, a record that would be broken just a few years later in 1995 with 97 deaths. That sounds so crazy. I mean, I know bigger cities have much higher homicide. Yeah, rate. I mean, I'm from Illinois, Chicago. Like, I love Chicago. It's a beautiful city, but they right. just like homicides, like just keep it, rolling and rolling and rolling. It's like so, life there. Right, so even though you know, that is a high number from Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. It's it's unfortunate that that's a low number for a major city. Right. But yeah, still very high for this, this size of city. Uh, so also during this same period of time, the HIV AIDS epidemic was raging with its most de deadly years still ahead. New infections worldwide were 2.27 million in 1991. And the death toll that year, like just in that one year was 442,000 people. So, and thinking about that in the whole course of the AIDS crisis from uh, 1981, when it was really kind of discovered and diagnosed to today has been over 75 million people that's in the usa uh i think that oh, one worldwide. that figure is worldwide okay but still, but still that's that's way too many people right i mean if that's all like like really kind of dangerously close to half a million people in just one year alone and you know like some of the some of the most deadly years were like throughout the like early to mid 90s right yeah, I, yeah. it's just so crazy to think that that there were so many people dying annually, not like even just here in the United States, but around the world. That's a lot of people. There was a lot of stigma attached to it. And it was really greatly associated with the 
portion of the LGBT community, uh, the men who have sex with, with other men. And it should also be noted that IV drug use and heterosexual sex are also contributors to the spread. I think one of the things that, that really solidified the stigma of AIDS and the gay community is that the gay community saw their, their people being affected and they took ownership of, of it. And the gay community was the, was the loudest, one of the loudest voices out there demanding research and demanding uh, you know, attention and funds and stuff to try and find uh, a cure for this disease, which is crazy because here it is, what is that, uh, 30, 40 years later, we're still working on a cure. Uh, right. there, there's been a lot of progress. And I've heard of individual cases where people have been like undetectable to the point that they there is no more virus detected in their body. Uh, but that's still, I feel like we're still a long way from, from really that being the reality where you could just be treated, like any person could be treated. Right, and it's, it's like, it's such a, it's such a mysterious disease that like we just can't figure it out for some reason. We just can't make, I mean, there's medications that suppress it. There's yeah. medications that make it so you can't pass it along to another person. Right. But there's, for some reason, there's no cure yet, which is, which is sad and frustrating. Yes. So this also correlated with a general rise in LGBT related hate crimes across the country. Today's case occurred at the intersection of the social issues of violent crime and the AIDS crisis. These are the stories of two lives that were viciously cut short. Their deaths shocked and frightened a vulnerable community in the Twin Cities. These victims were Joel Larson and John C. Chenoweth. The 1990s kicked off with a spike in hate crimes toward LGBT people. The Loring Park neighborhood, a Minneapolis neighborhood popular with the gay community, which is actually the next neighborhood over from where I live. And it's beautiful. It's just let everyone out there know. It's, it's such a nice park. It's got lakes, it's got sculptures, it's got walking paths. It's just so nice to be there. Yeah, it's even got like a little pool area and it's, it is just a really nice place, especially in the summertime. I love going for walks through there. So this park, which is at the heart of the neighborhood, saw 112 gay bashings in 1990. And the following year, there were 130 in the first half of the year alone. The park was a favorite cruising ground for men to meet and hook up. But that well-known fact made it an easy place to target homosexuals. Yet even amidst this backdrop of violence, Joel Larson couldn't help but be drawn to the city, which allowed many men like him from across the Midwest to feel like they could be accepted and present and present in their own community. In January of 1991, the 21-year-old Joel moved to an apartment in the Loring Park neighborhood of Minneapolis, just about a block from the park itself. He came from Urbandale, Iowa, which is a suburb of Des Moines. Another contributing factor to his move was that he was legally blind and he hoped to take advantage of better public transportation that was available to him in the city. So imagine 90s like suburban Iowa, like if you had any kind of vision impairment, that was probably a really hard way to get Yeah. Out. Like you probably couldn't get around super easily. No, like, I mean, from, you said Des Moines, right? Which Des Moines is not even a big city. It's, you know, it, it's well, a small the city. Of our listeners are from Des Moines. <laughs> yes, I know people from Des Moines, but I mean, in the early '90s, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big, it was a city, but it was a very, very small city. Yeah, and so you I about how uh, accessibility for people with disabilities, right? How, I'm, I'm, I wish I, oh man, I wish I knew when a lot, because I feel like a lot of that ADA compliance 
stuff started to kind of come to fruition in the 90s or like mm-hmm. you know like building codes would have to be or like certain things would have to be set up certain ways in new construction and I mean even when you think about how sidewalks are set up you know those little bumps on the right so people who are hearing impaired exactly so I think about stuff like that and I I imagine it Urbandale Iowa probably was did not have a lot of that stuff not also like if you wouldn't like if you have a vision impairment you wouldn't be able to drive so you would need to rely on the bus and I mean here in Minneapolis we have tons of bus lines and I'm sure at the time that would have been really beneficial for him to get around so yeah so this is the kind of the the context and what he's moving to Minneapolis for so he's he can express himself he can feel comfortable being an out gay man in this in this urban environment and also he can more easily move around as someone who's got a vision impairment. So here in Minneapolis, he got a job at a furniture store. Although one article uh, described him as a waterbed salesman, which I think is the most 90s job ever. That is, I only associate 90s waterbeds or waterbeds with the 90s rather. I, exactly. Yep. There is. Uh, I don't think anybody has put waterbed salesmen on on their uh, tax forms in a good twenty five years. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So he started working at this furniture store and began living his new urban life. So Joel is remembered as a very fabulous person. The pictures of him are very handsome which honestly just breaks my heart even more because I can picture him as someone that I would love to hang out with. Mm-hmm. He was blonde and energetic and dynamic. Uh, he loved new wave music and Madonna, loved to oh. dance, right? Could you imagine, especially early 90s Madonna, could you imagine going to a club and hearing 90s Madonna for the first time? Like you would. That would be heaven. I mean, I I love when there's like a vintage, which I hate that the '90s is now vintage. That shows <laughs> that shows my age. But I love it when I go to a club and they're playing like Madonna and Cher. And if early '90s he was going into a club doing his thing, you know, dancing to Vogue, I just right. I can, I'm picturing it. I can totally see this happening. He's such a fun person. Yes. He was definitely known among his friends as just being an all around stylish guy. From these loving remembrances of him, friends stated that he was always very particular about how he looked before he went out, fussing over his hair and making sure his outfit was just perfect before leaving his house. When Joel was struck down by a bullet to the back near the famous Dandelion Fountain, he was truly in the prime of his life. Now the other victim, John C. Chenoweth, he was a very different target than Larson. Chenoweth was 48 years old when he was murdered. He had a son, an ex-wife, and had been a Minnesota state representative from 1969 to 1971 and a Minnesota state senator from 1971 to 1979. He left the state Senate in 1979 to become the executive director of the Minneapolis Municipal Employees Retirement Fund, also known by its super catchy acronym of MRF. MRF? Like Smurfs without the S? Yeah, kind kind of. Yeah, yeah. Murph, it just it's it's just an ugly sounding. That is, I would not I would not use that as my catchphrase for sure. Yeah. But it's a lot shorter than saying Minneapolis Municipal Employees Retirement Fund every single time. So yeah. I might use it once or twice. We'll see. We'll see what what pans out here. Um, so he ran this retirement fund uh, until his resignation in 1990. So this is somebody who had a, a very public life. He 
he was in the public eye a lot and was at least superficially known to Minnesotans. And when I was looking at, at just like newspaper articles for him, like looking up his name as a keyword, there was quite a bit, you know, whether it was stuff that he was doing with the Senate in the 70s or stuff with the retirement fund in the 80s and 90s. This was somebody that was written about in the paper very, like regularly enough that people would recognize him. Let's see, he had been educated at some very impressive schools like the New York Institute of Finance, the University of St. Thomas, and the William Mitchell College of Law. He married his wife, Mary Sharon Naughton, in 1969 and had a son, John Jr., in 1974 but the couple divorced by 1977. While serving in Minnesota politics, Chenoweth was with the DFL, which is the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. And he served on committees concerned with governmental operations, finance, commerce, energy, and housing. In 1979, he left his seat in the Senate to manage the Minneapolis Municipal Employees Retirement Fund where years later, he got into hot water for buying a $42,000 Jaguar with pension fund money in 1987. The guy has expensive tastes. He does. I mean, I would have chosen Mercedes because <laughs> I love a Mercedes convertible, but you know, do your own thing. Right. I wish it had told me like what model of the of Jaguar it was. <laughs> So I could Google search it and see what exactly what kind of car it was. Cause right. it, for $1,000 in 1987 money, that was must've been an impressive car. But despite this, his lapse of judgment, some officials praised his performance with the handling of pensions, including Walt, Walter Zietzik, who sat on the board for the pension fund at the time and credited him with increasing the size of pension checks to the recipients. He had a bit of a Midas touch when it came to choosing investments. Growing the pensions fund at fun, growing the pension funds assets from $245 million to $800 million. I'd say that's, that's a pretty good, like even if you screwed up a little bit along the way, that's still a, like, what is that? Uh, quadruple almost quadrupling your money and yeah I mean that's a huge jump yeah and I mean what's nice is that the the people who were receiving the pensions like they benefit directly from that right um, which they should have rightfully right right I mean it's that's what the what he's there for is to make sure that they get their pensions so that they can live but others criticized some of Chenoweth's handling of the fund, including his move to invest in mortgages, which isn't normally done with pension funds. And years later, cost the fund more than $60 million and approximately $100 million in potential earnings. Further scrutiny came to Chenoweth's performance in the late 80s when he was accused of using drugs by a Murph employee and his job performance became more erratic as a result of the supposed drug use. This was never substantiated though, and he remained in his position for a little while longer. Chenoweth, seeing the writing on the wall though, submitted his resignation to the board in early 1990, and it was accepted with no future relationship between him and the fund. After his tenure, some of the riskier bets that he made came out, including an investment in a Louisiana fish farm that failed and a film called Return to the River Kwai that never made it to US theaters. It can be said that Chenoweth had a rocky life in the public eye and being a gay man in a time that was not always friendly to members of that community had to be challenging. In an article from the Star Tribune just three days after his death, it was said that his lifestyle was somewhat of an open secret, 
It didn't really come up though because it didn't have any bearing on his job performance. He was described as neither broadcasting or concealing his gay identity. But despite the controversies that plagued him in life, his death would eclipse them all. July 31st, 1991 was a typical balmy summer evening in Minneapolis. Joel Larson, who remember is legally blind, was walking through Loring Park back to his apartment just before midnight. He was nearly home, only, a block, only about a block away, when an assailant approached him from behind. A witness reported hearing Larson yell, you are not going to get my wallet, followed by four to six gunshots. Larson was hit, but managed to stagger out of the park onto nearby Willow Street, where he called out for help. Mm. By the time police arrived though, he had already slipped away and was pronounced dead at the scene. Initially, police thought it had been an attempted robbery gone wrong as the wallet that he had been carrying was gone. In response to the murder, the citizens for a Loring Park community organized a candlelight vigil a few days later on August 2nd at 9 p.m. to show the outrage and concern of the community. Neighbors were put on edge as Joel Larson became the 37th homicide victim in the city that year. <sighs> like, I can't imagine being so close to safety and, you, and you're just like struck down. I mean, that's when people let their guard down. You know, you're pointing to your driveway, you're, you're relieved that you're home. Mm-hmm. You, you're like, I'm gonna go inside, you know, I'm, I'm gonna clean the litter box, I'm gonna close the window and I'm gonna get ready for bed. That's what's in your mind. You don't yeah, think you are- about, you know, I should watch over my shoulder for who's ever behind right. me. Exactly. And what is crazy when uh, I was looking at different accounts from uh, from this or from an article about um, like what people had heard, and it it's made it sound like there was a lot of people in the park. So still at this hour, I mean, this was just before midnight, and I get you know whether people are just out on a nice night walk, maybe they're cruising, looking for someone to hook up with. But whatever the case is, it seems like it's still kind of a, like it seems risky even to like commit a crime in the park right. that late because there are so many other people around. You think someone might see you. Yeah, but, there's gonna be a witness if there right. is a place where people tend to gather after dark, you know, there's yeah. gonna be people around. So yeah, it makes sense that uh, this person was not out just for a wallet. Mm-hmm. They had ulterior motives. Right. And uh, what I think was really interesting about this, uh, about one of the witness statements is it, there was a uh, witness who was a neighbor who I guess their apartment overlooked the park and they said that they saw people running away from the park. And the thing is, you see, you know, 10, 15 people running away. You don't know, is one of those people the, the shooter or is one of those people the victim or are they just bystanders trying to get out of the way? So it, it makes for a very, very complicated uh, investigation. And on top of that, you're adding on the possible stigma of, oh, what were you doing in the park at midnight? This is a place where gay people like to cruise that automatically casts some sort of image on anybody who might've been a witness. So there might also be that added layer of people might not come forward because they're afraid to be identified as a member of the gay community. Exactly, whether they are or not in that time period. And even today, people are apprehensive about that. Yes. 
So less than two weeks later on August 10th, in the early morning hours, Chenoweth was cruising in Riverside Park, which is a heavily wooded area and beach that is situated on the bank of the Mississippi River. While perusing the area, he met 19-year-old Cor Cord Dratz. Now, I have, a fr I have a friend that I used to work with uh, who, also, who also cut my hair. If, and if he's listening, Christopher, I love you. And thank you for telling me this story because this is where I first heard about this story because he knew Cord. Um, they had gone to uh, school at Aveda together and he told me this this story and I just was like this is so wild like I can't believe that this happened here and this is what sparked the whole uh, my all my research into this so I'm really excited to have dug deep into this full story so while he's cruising uh, he meets Cord and from what between what I heard from my friend and the the newspaper articles at the time, it described Chenoweth as being partially disrobed when they found his body. Uh, so I get you could uh, safely assume that there was probably some hanky panky going on because that's what was happening in that area at the time. So when Chenoweth and Dratz were occupied with each other, a man with a gun approached and fired four bullets at the pair, fatally wounding Chenoweth. Dratz was shot once in the chest and once in the abdomen and was in serious condition right after the attack, but he did survive his wounds. So the police saw the two murders at two popular cruising grounds as likely connected and when they investigated the ballistics from the gun, from both crime scenes, they matched, solidifying the likelihood that one killer was targeting gay men in the areas they frequented the most. So this is like, gotta be scary at the time where it's, you never know where you're gonna be safe as a gay person. Right, and especially this neighborhood is home like this is their safe space mm -hmm. this is where they go to feel comfortable and to feel like other lgbtqia are are there with them and to know that there's a predator within their safe space yeah that has and, to be a terrible feeling and what's interesting is the i mean there's definitely some criticism that people would say be like, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing this out in public anyway. But the counterpoint to that too, is that a lot of this, the safe spaces that were set up for gay men to meet and have sex, like bathhouses had actually been shut down by the government permanently because of the AIDS crisis. Right. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting how or San Francisco did it. Um, and of course here in Minneapolis did it. I really was trying to find the name, like the names of of the old bathhouses that used to exist here, but I, it, I didn't have any luck finding what they were. It's they, the, the solution to this problem just created a whole nother problem. And it didn't, and it didn't stop the spread of, of HIV AIDS. It, it really probably didn't even really have, well, I, I don't know if there has been statistics done on the impact of closing of bathhouses because basically all the major cities put ordinances in place saying that the bathhouses have to be shut down. I mean, New York did it, LA did it. The only real safe spaces were gay bars uh, which there were a number of them around um, and some of them are still around and that that will uh, some gay bars will play uh, into this story a little bit later on. So uh, in the days after the murders, several tips had come in, but none had led to any significant leads. 
Some claimed the killer was white. Others said he was black. Potential witnesses may have shied away from coming forth because of the potential fallout for being associated with gay cruising sites. 15 to 18 people were apparently around the beach area when Chenoweth was killed, but few came forward in the days after the murder. Four homicide detectives were assigned to these two cases, and Captain Dennis Stelberg, head of investigations for the Minneapolis Police Department, assured the public that there will be no stone unturned on this investigation and that the department was committed to solving the murders. In the wake of the two killings, the Minnesota AIDS Project, which, send, which would normally send employees to areas where gay men congregate, to, they would go out to counsel and encourage safer sex practices. They discontinued that program of going out into the community temporarily out of concern for employee safety. It was clear that fear was spreading among the LGBT community. So I don't know if you've ever seen, like, I don't know how much you've gone out around here, but I've seen the Minnesota AIDS Project will sometimes go around to gay bars and offer free testing or offer free condoms and stuff like that, which is like, this is amazing. Like here we are going, like going into the community that is most vulnerable and giving you the tools to prevent the spread of this virus. And yeah, and make, making sure that they're safe, you know, making yeah. sure that the community is, is well informed and healthy. Yeah, and what was, and this is absolutely amazing that at this period of time in the early 90s, they were literally going to the cruising spots and handing out condoms. It's like, well, if you're going to do it anyway, you might as well do it in a safer manner, which is just one of those things that is so commendable and in like a way that people don't even realize how much good they're doing. I mean, I think some people would be like, oh, well, doesn't that encourage people to just keep doing this thing that they shouldn't be doing in public? But you're, you gotta look at it as you're saving lives because if, if a condom saves one person from getting infected with HIV, like it's worth it. Like, I, I just think that that's such an incredible thing that they were doing. And it's so terrible that to think that they were, they were discouraged from doing that because they didn't know if the, if that there was, if there was a killer that would potentially shoot one of their workers if I, I mean that's really scary it is and like that was a very noble cause they're like putting themselves out there to yeah. protect the community in more way than one yeah and they're still doing great work yes so several months passed and the cases had not been solved but in November of 1991, a suspect was finally identified. A 32-year-old man named Dirk Keith Jordan, a native of Evansville, Indiana. Hey, that's like, that's right next door to where you grew up practically. It is. And also he has three first names for a name. <laughs> so never trust, no. never trust a man with three first names. So he was arrested for the September 12th robbery of a popular gay bar called The Saloon, which is a bar that I have spent tons of time at, like my whole adult life. Yep, uh, I've been there too. It's a, yep. it's a good time. It's, you, gotta, you gotta go at least once. It's, it's an institution, a gay institution in Minneapolis. And also what I think is really great is that it the the full name of it like even though the sign just says like the saloon it's actually the y'all come back saloon <laughs> and it was actually in one of the articles when they talked about this it was they they were like he was arrested for the robbery at the y'all come back saloon and like that's really funny it's the whole 
the whole name of the actual, the actual full name of the bar. Um, so the robber was recognized as an occasional customer, which never rob places that you don't, don't rob places that you shop, don't rob places where you work, don't rob, just don't rob any place because they will probably recognize you. So that he was recognized not only as being a customer, but that he also matched the composite sketch that had been circulated as the possible murderer of Joel Larson. So the evidence was stronger that he had been present in the park the night of the murder of Joel Larson, but the evidence was a lot weaker that he would have had a connection to the murder of Chenoweth. But while Jordan was being held on robbery charges, a letter surfaced that was sent to a Twin Cities gay newspaper called Equal Time that gave graphic accounts of the two murders from the previous summer. The letter expressed the desire to effectively shut down public spaces where gay men congregated. The writer thought by killing attractive gay men, they were slowing the spread of AIDS and they expressed cockiness that they would never be caught. The letter went on for six pages and was signed the AIDS Commission. The threat had never been so clear cut. If the LGBT community wanted to put an end to this reign of terror, they were going to have to work together with the police despite the lack of their community members among their ranks. It's through the cooperation between the Gay and Lesbian Community Action Council and the police that the true murderer was really discovered. So it should be noted at this time, there were zero out LGBT police members at this time. It, you gotta think that there is, and, and also there's this history uh, of the police, you know, harassing members of the community, maybe when they're cruising in the park or, or, you know, just doing everyday things sometimes. So they've got kind of this rocky past with the police and now they have to team up with them and cooperate to solve these murders. And I yeah, think that- I, I feel like that's something that happens time and time again with marginalized communities and law enforcement. Right, um, you could say that probably the same thing with immigrant communities because there's a lot of distrust there. Right. Are afraid that they might get deported if they go to the police, but then the people who commit the crimes get to commit more crimes if they don't get caught. It's just nobody wins when nobody's talking to each other. Right. And there's the whole history of like these past crimes against people from my community were not just like they didn't follow through the judicial system, you know, and my community was ignored where the majority community was, you know, a slap on the wrist. Right. So I can understand the tension with that. Mm -hmm. The Gay and Lesbian Community Action Council had been receiving threatening phone calls from time to time during the course of the investigation. Eventually, police were able to trace these calls and arrest the perpetrator. The calls were made from a Roseville boarding house, a little less than 10 miles from Minneapolis. And they were made by a man named J. Thomas Johnson. Also another like almost three first names, like. Maybe his first name is Jason. And he goes I, by J. <laughs> I mean, J and Thomas are definitely both first names. But and, and Johnson at least has John in it. Yeah, that's where I was going with like. I, yeah, I feel like it's it's very close to following that three first name rule. Look out for those those people who have too many first names. So Johnson, who was 24 years old at the time, was working at a Denny's restaurant. He was arrested, and a search of the premises turned up a gun clothing related to the attacks and documents regarding possible future attacks. 
The evidence was overwhelming and the motivation for the killing opened up a strange new angle to the case. So they found a ton of evidence. He kept a journal of his thoughts and feelings and it was not very... So J. Thomas Johnson, a rather soft-spoken, half-black, half-white man, was adopted and grew up in a very strict, conservative, religious family. His father was vice president of enrollment at Bethel College and Seminary. Throughout his schooling, he was a bit awkward, but very ambitious. He was hoping for a political career one day and he participated in student government and became student council president his senior year of high school. He did have some troubles with his official responsibilities though, and even got into a fight with a female classmate, blaming her for his troubles with the student council. So this is already not a good sign. Like he's, I, I the article just described the scuffle that they had is, he like pushed her into a locker or something like that. I'm like- Over student council? Over student council, like- Okay. And he, and, the, and he was claiming, like he was, he wanted to be the first black president. Like that was his, that's how ambitious he was. I'm like, nope, this, this is gonna come back to bite you. In college, he continued to be controversial often writing columns for the school paper professing extreme conservative views like banning gays in the military and writing off MLK Day as an unnecessary observance. But he eventually dropped out of college after frequently not showing up to classes despite being described as bright. So <laughs> this really gets me like, here you, you're, I feel like he kind of would try to get people's goat a little bit. Like he enjoyed kind of pushing his really conservative agenda just to kind of see people's reaction to it. And I don't know, that really rubs me the wrong way. Right, I, I completely agree with you. Like I feel like he's on like on a mission to yeah. either like convert people or to just sort of fight. Yeah, one of the two. I feel like that's that's the attitude that I'm getting. So it's like, wow, okay, I can see where this whole murder thing might have developed. So the indoctrination he experienced through his strict upbringing and other outside influences like Pat Robertson's The 700 Club, he saw being gay as a sin worthy of death. In fact, in an interview with filmmaker Arthur Dong, he described his father as almost genocidal when it came to discussing the gay community. Johnson, however, was gay. And on top of that, he was HIV positive. He, his conflicting and confused feelings toward his own sexuality, his racial identity, and his faith bred nothing but hatred and confusion in his life. So it's also should be noted too that he was adopted by a white family. Sure. So I... He's a mixed race child growing up in a very strict white household, which I can only imagine uh, that would be really difficult because here you are estranged from your black identity but not really being able to fully be accepted as a white person is because like, you can't deny the other half of you. It's, right. It's like, uh, he never knew the other part of himself. Right. He's told and, that this is how he should be. This is what he should believe. This is how he should behave. And I just, it's a lot of like forced conformative down down the throat like onto him yeah so with this this whole background uh and all this kind of self-hatred uh, he believed that if he could shut down the places where 
where public gay sex was happening, that he could somehow limit his own temptations and stop the spread of AIDS to the general population. His assurance that the Bible condemned homosexuality gave him righteous hatred. And then his later diagnosis of HIV after the killings really set him on the path to become a serial killer. He expressed wanting to rank among the most notorious of them all. He stalked the cruising grounds sometimes from 10 p.m. to four in the morning and occasionally went to gay bars trying to both satisfy his desires while still maintaining a certain anonymity. But whether it was from rejection, his fire and brimstone upbringing or the fear of AIDS, his hatred took over and he gave in to his urge to kill. He is quoted as saying, I fully intend to expedite a number of souls on their journey to the gates of heaven or the dungeons of hell. He further expressed the need to send a message to the promiscuous, filthy gay community. With such a strong case that he was a danger to society, his bail was set for $2 million. That's, that's a big price tag. And I mean, $2 million? at that time were like an exorbitant amount of money today right uh there i don't think anyone like it was pretty safe to say that he was going to be behind bars on at least until his trial joel larson was laid to rest at cavalry cemetery in eagle grove iowa in life his friends had joked that he would be late to his own funeral because he was known for fussing over every last detail before he left the house to go out. And he lived up to it. Family made sure that his hair was just so before he made his way to his final resting place. In 2015, a memorial park bench was installed in Loring Park to preserve the memory of Joel Larson. It faces away from the scene of the crime and overlooks the beautiful expanse of the park. On the bench, there is an inscription that says, let us turn our backs on hate, teach love. There is also a brick in the heart of the park's large flower garden that is inscribed with the same sentiment. Joel has become a permanent part of the park and his short life will not be forgotten. John Chenoweth was laid to rest in Roselawn Cemetery in Roseville, Minnesota. Unfortunately, his reputation continued to take a hit after his death. After his resignation from Murph, there were civil suits filed against him that played out after his death and the retirement fund won a $7.27 million settlement from Chenoweth's estate. His son and his ex-wife, though, are still around, as far as I can tell, and are now living in Florida. So that's got to be really tough. Where, like, well, even in death, you still uh, you still owe money. Cord Drast sadly struggled with the trauma of that fateful day on the beach. He did go on to attend the Aveda Institute and became a successful cosmetologist. He met his partner, Michael Kalk, and they moved to Anamia, which is a small town just south of Lake Mille Lacs in North Central Minnesota. He passed away at the age of 32 on May 20th, 2004. In 1997, Johnson was interviewed for a documentary called Licensed to Kill by gay Asian American director, Arthur Dong. Dong interviewed multiple men who were in prison for gay-related hate crimes. And it's very interesting that um, when I looked into the background of this documentary, he, he as a, an out gay man, had been gay bashed. And this whole documentary was kind of, it seemed like it was almost therapeutic to be able to talk to men who had committed crimes like the kind that had been committed against him. Yeah, um, maybe so it was I mean, kind of like 
he was able to see the other side of the table like sure it's not okay that he could maybe hear their their mentality behind it the rationality behind it right try and and, uh, i feel like when you try to understand it we can we can learn from that and try and make a better society yes completely agree so in his interview johnson reveals not only his torment from his religious upbringing but also the racism within the gay community. In his pursuit of white men, he often found a racial barrier when it came to navigating intimate situations. He was shocked that a community that had been marginalized already would also marginalize him for being mixed race. There were some white people who preferred blacks, he said, but even in those cases, they tended to prefer the truly ethnic black person. In other words, with the manner of speech, the things we would associate with the ethnicity, and I do not have those. So hearing him, when you hear his interview, he has a very, he very much talks like a white person. He has got a very distinct way of speaking that is I could totally be like wow you would not expect that voice to come out of that guy uh and he's very like I said I said earlier like soft-spoken like not a very aggressive seeming man at all sure so in other words he described his experience in the gay community as being unsuccessful at something you hate When he began having thoughts of killing to eliminate temptation, he saw himself as helping the overall situation, targeting attractive gay men who might otherwise spread HIV AIDS. And he could point to the Bible for moral justification. When it came down to it, shame was what it all came back to. Since his imprisonment, Johnson describes himself as being in a much better mental state. He is still a religious person, but recognizes that he had been exposed to the extreme negative side of Christianity and emphasizes that there needs to be much more focus on love and understanding. Nobody's ever become healed or or become a better person by being yelled at and condemned and told that they're going to die of AIDS because of it, he said. Johnson will have his first opportunity at parole in 2032, nearly 40 years after his crimes were committed. To end on a positive note, there is so much to take away from this case. Cooperation and community can solve crimes and bring justice. We are all so much stronger together than we are apart. And no matter how much someone tries to extinguish the flame of an individual, the light will always continue to shine through. The message that will live on forever is to teach love. So I like to acknowledge the many, many sources that I used for today's episode. Uh, Thanks to the Hennepin County Library, I was able to access Lots of newspaper articles from the St. Paul Pioneer Press and the Minneapolis Star Tribune that were absolutely invaluable. I also watched the documentary Licensed to Kill by Arthur Dong, which is very, very powerful. Um, It's streaming on Vimeo. Unfortunately, it's not on like Netflix or Hulu, but you can find it on Vimeo. It was like $1.95 to rent, so... If you're interested in that, it's definitely worth a look. Um, Newsbreak.com was helpful, as well as the Twin Cities Daily Planet. Uh, Twin Cities Public Television, they actually had a very nice video that they had posted on Facebook about Joel Larson and the park bench dedication. And then the Milax Messenger provided details on Cord Drat's final years. So there is the full story of the murders of Joel Larson and John Chenoweth. Oh, that's a heavy one. I mean, there's... It's a big one. There's so much that goes with that, you know, outside of 
Joel and John's story, uh, there's just so much that, there's just so much history with so much hate crime. And a lot of it was just, you know, because people were raised to believe a certain way. Mm-hmm. And not it's, to, not to blame, not to blame any certain like religion or certain way of life, but I just feel like there are certain followings that train people to hate other people. And, and it still goes on. Yeah. And as he said in like later when he was in imprisonment, he's learned to focus on the love, you know, to love each other for everyone's differences not to focus on the differences as something to change, but something to embrace. Right. And, and I, I think that sentiment that he shared of like, nobody has, you know, there's, there's so much of um, kind of the, the, the yelling message be like, this is how it is. Like, it's like, it's a sin to be a homosexual. And, and when you think about it, nobody's ever, like you've never changed anybody's mind by yelling at them. You've got to come at somebody half and meet them halfway. And you can have a dignified discussion, but it's when, when things get too black and white, you know, obviously he saw it as, well, you're either good or bad and I need to eliminate the bad that's just that's where you get these horrible tragedies like this and unfortunately that's that's how a lot of society is Mm -hmm. i mean i'm not saying all people are like that clearly we're not like that good lord i hope but you know there there are those sex and those pockets of people that you know they wish to everyone to conform to how they believe and if they don't conform to how they believe, then you're not worthy of being here, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And it's just really important to tell these stories because if we forget where we've been, uh, we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. Uh, I think it's also good to be grateful you know, I feel like we are very, very fortunate to be living in a, the times that we are living in now as, as a gay person. I, I can't imagine how I would have reacted to the struggles that the gay community has had to go through. And, and this really brings it home just because it is something that is from my home city. The, these are places that I've gone to. So I feel like I have that historical connection now. And yeah, and yeah, just don't take your, your um, freedoms for granted. Exactly. I get that too. I'm, I'm a member of the community from a very rural conservative setting. And even in the early 2000s, I had it easy in that setting. I can't imagine what it been like even just 10 years earlier. So, yeah. So if there's one thing our listeners can take away, it's teach love, love each other, teach acceptance. And yep. If you don't understand, then just try to get to talk somebody, you know, yeah. listen to their experience, hear them out, get to know them as a person. Exactly. Well, I like, I like this, this ending note is much better. Yes. Teach love. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for sharing the story, Chris. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for listening. This is, this was one, like I said, I was very, very excited to tell this story and uh, it was a labor of love doing all the research. I spent uh at least the the greater part of one whole afternoon just like digging through newspaper articles online and it's really amazing how i would come up with a question and i would find an article that answered that question it was just it was just like sifting for 
gold. <laughs> and that well, was uh, that was very fun to do. Yes, well, I'm glad you found that gold because it was <laughs> it was great to hear, even though it was a sad story. Yes. Um, well, should we do? Uh, let's see. We've got our social media. Yep, we are Instagram at Dark and Devious Podcast. Also on Facebook at Dark and Devious Podcast. If you would like to send us some uh, suggestions or just a message to your host, we are yeah, at right. Dark. We are right. at Dark and Devious Podcast at gmail.com. And we thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Yes, thank you as always to our our friend, uh, the band Jeronis for doing our theme song. Yes, and until next time. Bye. Bye.